and welcome to the latest in the IMAP series of Intelligent Thought podcasts. It's a pleasure for me to welcome today Rebecca Myatt, Portfolio Manager of First Centia, and Angela Ashton, a Director of Evergreen Consultants. And we're going to be talking today about responsible investing with a particular perspective on infrastructure and a focus on infrastructure's role in the portfolio. So, Angela, um, as both a researcher and portfolio manager, um, what are the different approaches to ESG that that you see across managers and, and how is that evolving? Um, there is an extraordinary array of ways that managers are approaching ESG and responsible investment. Um, I think... In, in many cases, it's actually better to set up your own framework and try and place managers' approaches in that uh, because otherwise it's extraordinarily consu- um, confusing. We tend to use uh, RIA's investment spectrum and we tend to score managers across that. RIA's investment spectrum, RIA is the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia. Um, they break up approaches to responsible investment into seven categories and that they include negative screening, positive screening, um, you know, all the way through to impact. So most managers do something along that spectrum. Um, Other managers think about um, sustainable development goals, which are goals that have been um, uh, formulated by the UN um, and that they would like to reach by 2030. So uh, there's a lot of managers thinking about sustainable development goals or SDGs and are trying to map what they are doing to those. Um, And then we have others thinking about net zero. So there's a a broad array, um, but it's it's important, I think, to keep a framework and and to help keep your thoughts, um, you know, in in some sort of check around you know, the ways that things are happening. In terms of like what we're seeing in terms of trends, the the managers are generally getting better. We're seeing over time they're thinking more about ESG, they're thinking more about negative screening, they're thinking more about impact and SDGs. So it's definitely improving across the board regardless of the approach they're taking. And so, Rebecca, how do you, how do you integrate ESG considerations into the listed um, infrastructure fund and... Um, and I guess the, the sort of a, the corollary question to that, which is, which is how different that is from your global strategies uh, in First India. Yeah, so we integrate ESG into our investment process through um, a proprietary sustainability analysis. You know, this analysis is used to determine if a stock contributes to or benefits from sustainable development. And when we're talking about sustainable development, what we're really talking about is is those UN sustainable development goals because we use those as our as our guiding lens. Um, you know, infrastructure companies, by their very nature, have you know large carbon footprints and social licenses to operate. So these companies can really create step changes towards things like affordable clean energy, you know, climate action, resource consumption and production, etc. Um, so I guess you know how are we different from the the global fund. 
you know, well, we're different because we, we invest in a slightly different way. You know, I, I think about the responsible listed infrastructure fund being a marriage of listed infrastructure and socially responsible investing, which is investing to achieve an environmental or social objective on top of delivering a risk-adjusted financial return. You know, this type of investing is different to an ESG integration approach, which is essentially trying to, um, you know, price certain risks into the investment process. And so you mentioned that you opted for the sustainable development goals. Um, What made you choose them as as part of your process? Yeah, so we like the UN Sustainable Development Goals because they really acknowledge um, that we're on a journey um, to achieving a sustainable future. And, you know, that's a journey that every company can have a role to play in. Um, You know, the goals take into account both environmental and social targets, which I think is something that's, that's really important, especially within infrastructure, because it's consumers that are paying for these essential services. You know, and we, we think there's about six primary goals that infrastructure companies can really deliver against. Obviously, there's a lot more secondary goals, but we think that there's really six that, you know, just kind of um, are really prevalent through the portfolio. Uh, and the two largest contributors, you know, through the portfolio are really that affordable clean energy and climate action piece. You know, if you think around, you know, 95% of the portfolio emissions are really coming from utilities. So what they invest in, you know, how they reposition themselves for a more electrified world will really drive, um, you know, be a driving force for these goals to be achieved by by 2030. Another one is is clean water and sanitation. You know, it's something that our, our water utilities can really deliver against. And, and we're seeing significant opportunities, you know, in, in U.S. water companies as they expand their footprint through what we call tuck-in acquisitions, which is buying, you know, smaller cities on the service of uh, on the perimeter of their service territory um, and increasing the water quality to those residents. You know, if you think um, one study, which was the American Society of Civil Engineers, rates the water systems in the U.S. as a C minus. Um, I'm sure you weren't actually expecting me to say that, probably something a lot higher. And that just shows the level of investment that's really required in that space. Um, I, I guess um, the recent legislative um, developments in the U.S., which are focused on infrastructure, I mean, do, do they form part of your thinking about the investment opportunities that are going to emerge? Um, I think one of the most uncontested parts of the Build Back Better plan is is the climate part. Um, So I think the bits that people are discussing in length around, you know, reducing, it is not really that climate part. So extending production tax credits, including some standalone production tax credits, um, I think most people are actually on board with that. And all that will do is just, you know, accelerate um, things like solar, standalone storage, um, and potentially even hydrogen, if um, if we can get a production tax credit for hydrogen. So it just extends this structural growth story that we're already seeing. Um, a- Angela, um, you know, clients, advice clients, advice practices come to you and say, oh, we want, you know, a portfolio solution, you know, which we're going to articulate through our managed account program. Um, like, h- how do you, how do you then tease out from them w- what that actually means, and then how do you translate that into actual investments with it within a portfolio? So, in an RI sense, what we tend to find is, first of all, we're very early on the journey. 
Um, so a lot of advisors we find tend to have a paper portfolio somewhere. That's an RI model in their view. And they'll use that for the clients who might want an ESG or an RI type approach. Um, and when you sort of talk to them about it, there, there is no real framework. Often it's just funds that have sustainable or green or something in the title. Um, and there's not a lot of clarity further than that. So what we tend to do is try and to get them to start thinking about things in the same framework that we do. Um, and what that allows us to do and them is to have structured conversations with both their clients and with us about what they want these portfolios to be. Um, so we've actually um, developed uh, like a, a something like a risk profiler but for uh, responsible investment for clients so you can get the client to fill out the questionnaire and, and work out what they want from RI. You can also do as a, as a practice and work out what your investment philosophy is around RI and then that helps to guide you through the funds that you can potentially use. I think it's really important to realise that in many cases that there is so much um, ESG integration um, in, in lots of funds that often your, your portfolio is a bit greener, if you want to think of it that way, than you might actually believe already. So it, it's often not, there's often not a need to just have every green fund in the portfolio. You can actually often have normal, non-green funds and still meet the sorts of goals you want. And I don't think a lot of advisors realise that. There's still a lot of education but I would say just as a general rule, there's definitely more interest. I mean, I think two years ago, most companies or most practices didn't have a paper portfolio. I'd say now from the ones we talk to, it's very common. They may not be using it for everyone, but they're using it for at least some. And I think we're starting to see that build up of people wanting it more and more. We, we, we ran a um, independent thought roundtable on um responsible investing um, a week or two two ago and uh, Peter Wilson from Strategic Wealth in Melbourne was talking about his approach. Um, he he has a set of portfolios with an ESG focus. Um, his view is that um, every client now considers it and, um, a, and about a third of his client's assets end up in, a, in an explicitly ESG portfolio. Um, yeah, he would be probably... Um, let's call it cutting edge um, in terms of RI, but I think, you know, that's going to become more and more the norm. We can see it starting to build. Yeah. And so, Rebecca, when when you're trying to articulate your approach um, or the approach of, your, of the um, listed infrastructure fund um, to advisors and, to, you know, to, to researchers, um what how nuanced do you think their understanding is of the of the approach that you're that you're taking i think one thing that we really find um so i think as a step back more clients are wanting this kind of um investing so i think clients are demanding um both a risk adjusted financial return and some environmental or social objectives so so we do see that um within listed infrastructure itself I think a lot of people um, don't realise when we talk about net zero, what is actually required to to meet net zero and just how big a role infrastructure has to play in that. Um, you know, when we're thinking about net zero, we just cannot achieve that 
without investment within listed infrastructure. You know, we need cleaner generation to replace coal and gas. We need transmission and distribution to transport that cleaner generation to the load centers where we use it. You know, we eventually need um, a network for electric vehicle charging stations, and we need investment in emerging technologies that can one day be cost competitive enough to decarbonize the hard to abate sectors. Um, so I feel that a lot of clients, you know, when we articulate how net zero can be achieved over the next three decades, start to understand really infrastructure's role in playing that and actually want to be part of that journey. Um, I think we're all aware we all we're all in different countries where we have, you know, varying different weather patterns and we can see actually what's happening to our climate. And I think a lot of clients really want to be doing, um, you know, for their investments to really help tackle this, you know, code red, if you will. And a lot of people are actually realizing that, you know, investing in infrastructure is actually the way that we can really push for change. And I think that's one of the appeals of, um, of the asset class. Uh, uh, you, you talked. There are two things that come out for me from from the points you, you, you've you've just made. Um, you were talking about water before, and I guess um, one of the things which is of interest to me is the sort of crossover between, say, a drive for net zero and and then a kind of a, a separate issue of of water infrastructure. Um, do you see that they are sort of completely separate issues, or 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 are they intermingled? I think it's um, all intermingled. I mean, climate change is causing droughts in many different countries um, and droughts cause problems to, um, you know, to deliver potable water to residents. So we need infrastructure um, that's able to cope with drought situations. You know, where do we get the water from if, um, you know, if we're in a drought situation? I mean, we have one utility that we invest in in Chile um, and they've been in, in a drought situation for quite some time. So, you know, they're trying to think of some, um, you know, newer ways in terms of how do they, they get water to actually give water to their residents. Um, so I think climate action is having an impact on um, surface water globally, um, especially those countries that are in drought situations. So it, it's actually all interlinked. Um, the need for water infrastructure in, in the U.S., um, you know, absent of any drought climates, it is just the fact that um, it's aged infrastructure. And, you know, across the globe, um, a lot of the investments that we're seeing is just the replacement of aged infrastructure, which is why it's a structural growth story rather than a cyclical growth story. You know, we have pipes in the ground that are over 100 years old um, because that investment hasn't been made. Um, and that's when we start to have or we have the potential to have um, incidents. And also, you know, water leakage. Um, you so know, you've driven through my suburb. Um, you've, <laughs> you've seen I mean, water is water. a scarce resource. <laughs> you know, water is a scarce resource and we have really high leakage rates in certain parts of the world. You know, obviously, like energy consumption, you know, the, the first way to not do that is to stop leaking. And that's investment in pipes. Yeah, I think that's my suburb as well, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we, we should all be investing in Sydney water, the, the, at least the repairs <laughs> and maintenance part of it. Yes, so uh, and I want to come back to one of the other points you made, Rebecca, and um, you, you, you talked about the role of tax credits um, in facilitating um, at least initial um, investment in infrastructure assets. Um, how do you, as a portfolio manager, how do you think about 
the place of, you know, taxpayer assistance, tax credits or, or rebates or, you know, explicit incentives um, from an investment point of view? So, you know, if we think about tax credits in, in the US, which has been um, the primary way that they have subsidised um, the rollout of onshore wind and solar, um, that's been extremely successful um, in getting those two technologies to be um, cost competitive today. Um, so I think that, you know, if we can have an extension of tax credits for things like standalone storage and hydrogen, they will follow similar pathways that we have seen in the onshore wind and solar in the US. Um, you know, we've got a decade's worth of, um, you know, analysis there to show that it's actually been extremely good. So the, the drive for renewables has come from renewable portfolio standards within the states, so driving a need for renewables. And then federal um, tax credits as well has has absolutely helped the the rollout of them. Um, so I think an extension of that and and an expansion of that, um, you know, will be good for the US going forward. Do, do you think it's Do you think it is sustainable, though, if it's part of the investment equation that that tax credits or 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 taxpayer support? Is essentially facilitating this. I mean, is that a sustainable part of the um, of the ongoing investment? You know, of the investment argument. Well, I think for onshore wind and solar in the United States, they're pretty much cost competitive today. So, the tax credits have enabled the rollout of further renewables. But um, you know, going forward, they can stand on their their own two feet. If the tax credits then continue, obviously there'll just be more incentive for a much more accelerated build out um, of those technologies. Um, so, so, Angela, um, going back to the point you you made earlier on about um, developing portfolios for for clients, as you say, you know, quite often an advice firm comes to you with a with a paper portfolio. Um, how much guidance do you provide in sort of balancing net zero? Sustainable Development Goals, other ESG um, objectives um, in in the formulation of of managed account type portfolios. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult to build a portfolio with something like net zero in mind. Um, so, and and also also you need to remember that even if you were to be able somehow to build a, a portfolio that might be aiming for that right now. Um, the reality is fund managers can change approaches. So it's something that, you know, trying to set something that sort of is predicated on fund managers investing in a certain way is always fraught with danger. You, you can't control that part of the investment equation. So the, the way that we tend to approach it is to really think about it again in terms of that RIA investment spectrum and really think about, um, you know, sort of, I guess, enhancing um outcomes with respect to that and the the, the advantage of that is be, is that it looks at how fund managers are applying uh responsible investment to their portfolio so it's really looking at manager processes which is a much easier thing to um you know keep monitoring than the actual portfolios themselves which can change over time and can lead to completely different outcomes from day to day um, so, so we tend to focus on the manager processes, which is, you know, in line with what consultants do broadly anyway. 
Um, so, so that's the way that we think about it is really just enhancing, I guess, those, um, those really broad RI approaches, uh, ESG integration, negative screening, positive screening, impact. And something around net zero might fall into impact. Um, impact is difficult to get in the Australian managed funds universe. There's not a lot of funds that, that do a lot of impact. Well, well, let's 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 um, sort of. I'm conscious of time, so let's sort of wrap up then by thinking about in, infrastructure in, in the role of portfolio construction for you. Um, you know, how 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 do you approach um, the issues of kind of the, the expected return and risk of of infrastructure type type investments with in the context of responsible investing portfolios? Yeah. So look. Infrastructure is a really interesting asset class, and it has been for a very long time. Um, when you think about um, a lot of the um, characteristics of the asset class around things like inflation proofing, um, which are becoming more and more important, the uh, ability to to generate um, yields that are you know that are basically regulated by some government somewhere. Often, um, it's really you know it's a really valuable characteristic, and that's why so many private investors want access to that asset class and good assets in that asset class. So you know it definitely has some really great characteristics, um, and then it's coupled with the the fact that as Rebecca has discussed, um, the asset class is going to um, undergo significant investment because it is absolutely critical to you know, a, a more responsible investing world, a net zero world, a world where SDGs are met. So the asset class as a whole is very interesting. We're definitely tilting not just in our RI portfolios, but in all of our broad portfolios, we, we have some sort of um, infrastructure um, exposure with, with probably a mind to, you know, increase that in time. And so finally, Rebecca, to you, I mean, we, we're currently in a very low interest rate environment with, with projections that, you know, we might be starting to see um, interest rates turn up. Um, I don't hear too many people talking about lower for longer um, anymore. Um, it, in thinking about y- your investment opportunities, um, what part does does interest rates and, and projected interest rates play in, in the investment decisions? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what's driving up interest rates. I mean, if it's inflation, um, you know, we're, we're not scared of inflation. Um, you know, we have a lot of assets that are earning real returns where inflation is is a path is a pass through. Um, and equally, we have a number of um, companies where if it's, you know, GDP that's really driving interest rates up, then we have another number of companies that can, you know, have that pricing power um, to equally drive up their own returns. You know, more volume sensitive um, infrastructure as well that can benefit from that. So, you know, we feel that there's a portion of the portfolio that's both in inflation protected um, and a portion of the portfolio that's really against that capital growth. Part. So they're the two characteristics and the two halves of the portfolio, if you will. Great. Well, look, thank you very much, Rebecca Myatt of First Centia, Angela Ashton from Evergreen um, Consulting. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been very interesting for me to, to listen to both of you talking about these considerations. And um, I look forward to having you join us again in the future in our Independent Thought podcast series. Thanks very much. Thank you.